Well, good morning. I'm um, sorry for my late arrival, um, but I do have a, a few thoughts to share from our gospel, so why don't we um, pray, have a brief homily, and, um, and we will continue with our, with our service. Lord, I thank you for gathering us today. We pray now as we reflect on your gospel, the good news of your Son, Jesus, that you would touch our hearts. You would form us evermore into your image. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I was um, preparing for this sermon uh, this morning, I was looking back through some of my old sermons on these readings, and I realized that almost nine years ago I preached my first sermon here at St. Paul's, and I made one point, that as Christians we have this call in our lives to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. A great quote from Paul's letter to um, the Corinthians. And in that sermon, I pondered that after three years of seminary, after countless hours of history and liturgy and theology and ethics, was I to come out of that knowing only one thing? Jesus Christ and Him crucified? Now, most of you have never had a chance to read old sermons that you preached nine years ago. I will tell you this, there are some cringe-worthy moments in those archives. <laughs> but that one truth has held firm, no doubt, through nine years of ministry. And no doubt most of y'all know this, whether it's 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years of following Jesus, you know that at the end of the day, there's the one thing, and it's Jesus the crucified Christ. That's the one thing we know, and everything else that we might think we know flows from that one truth that Jesus died for our sins, for our salvation. And so that reality has not changed for me over nine years, but what has grown is this depth of understanding of the extent of what that means of how all-encompassing this one truth actually is in our lives. So what I want us to do this morning is actually to look at our gospel, to look at Matthew chapter 5, because there's no better exposition of this cross-shaped life, of the cruciform life. There's no better exposition of a life that knows the one thing than Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Basically, what he's saying is if you know this one thing, if you know that Jesus Christ has been crucified for you, this is, through the power of the Holy Spirit, by no doing of our own, the kind of life God is pushing us into. The Sermon on the Mount starts in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 13 to 20 this morning. I invite you to open up your Bibles or your Bible app on your phone or however you wish to look at the text, but I encourage you to do so. It helps you, um, I think it helps to follow along. And before this, and you read it last week, I, I think, um, was the Beatitudes, right? The, the Matthew 5, 1 to 12, um, the blessed R's. And you know, these are shocking, some of them. Blessed are the poor in spirit. If you were listening to that in Jesus' day, you would have said, no, I don't think that's right. Blessed are the, the meek or the humble. I don't know. I don't think that's how it goes. Blessed are the peacemakers or those who are persecuted. No, I don't think so. In fact, even today, if you were to close your eyes and think, 
of all the reasons that you would call yourself blessed, I'm guessing at the top of the list would not be, I'm blessed because others revile me and persecute me and other all kinds of evil against me. That's not, um, that's not you wouldn't put that on Instagram with a blessed hashtag, right? That's not what we think about. That's what Jesus is saying. That this is a, a countercultural blessedness to the life that is following Jesus. And what we see in our passage this morning, then building on, on that, this understanding of blessedness in the Beatitudes, is, is what does a cruciform life look like and the way that it relates to the world around it? That's the first thing. And the second thing is, um, what is required to achieve this cruciform life that looks a certain way to the world around it? What, what are these two things? So what does it look like and how do we um, achieve it? And so the first thing is this, how do we relate as followers of Jesus who know the one thing of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, how do we relate to the culture that surrounds us? This is a question that, that the church has been wrestling with for years, and there's lots of ways to approach it. There's, there's some strands that would say, well, we just need to reject the culture and condemn it. It's bad. Stay away. Or we could just, even if we don't publicly reject it, we could withdraw from it, right? And, and create our own little Christian subculture. We can circle the wagons and make sure good things stay in and bad things stay out. Or perhaps on the opposite of all of that, we could, we could adopt the ways of the world and say, look, if, if we want to be relevant, if we want to reach people today, we need to look and act and behave like they look and act and behave. Otherwise, they're not going to want anything to do with us. And I think what Jesus is saying to all of those is no. No, that's not, that's not right. He gives us a different vocabulary. He uses salt and light to describe how we as Christians who know, the Jesus, who know the one thing of Jesus Christ and Him crucified might look in this world. So look at um, verses 13 to 16. Jesus said, um, to those who are gathered, Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. How do we relate to the world around us? Well, we are salt and light. We are salt. What is salt used for? It's used to flavor food, right? But it, um, it, it doesn't bring its own flavor to the food. The, the idea with salt is to bring out the flavor of the food that's already there. Or in the same way salt is used as preservation, it, it preserves the food. And I think both of these can illustrate how Christians might act in, in the world around us. We can bring out the flavor. God created this world. He created the people in it. And the people in the world that God created are creating culture in this world, and there are good things in it. There are holy things and blessed things, and as Christians, we can draw that out and say, these are good and holy and right because God is the author of all creation. 
And we can create good and holy things that bring glory to God that the whole world can see. And not only that, we can add some preservation to the world. We can live in the world and and be holy and righteous and life-giving and hope-sharing people into a world that so often is lacking these things. Salt's not so good when it's not used with food, right? When it's when it's not used to, um, to preserve the food or bring out the taste, salt by itself doesn't taste that good, does it? Or what about salt that's lost its taste? Now, I'm not exactly sure how that works, but, but salt that has no taste or tastes just like the food around it, it's not very useful, is it? Except to maybe give us higher cholesterol. But it doesn't do anything. And so there's this idea that we're supposed to be in the world as salt, but slightly or majorly sometimes different from it. Or the second illustration here, we're called to be light, a light that brings guidance in the midst of darkness. Imagine um, it's a dark night in the desert, there's no electricity, there's no ambient light around, except for this distant city on a hilltop where the flickering flames of the candles are still burning. If you were a weary traveler, that sight would be such good news. Or imagine lighting a candle in a dark room and the, the, the light it suddenly brings to the room around it. Now what happens if you cover it up or if you hide it? It goes out, right? That's not the point. You wouldn't light a candle then to cover it up. You, you light it to bring light into the darkness. Now friends, there is much, much darkness in this world. There's evil. There's death. There's sin. Sometimes that darkness dwells in our own hearts. And yet we are called by the power of the Holy Spirit to be lights in the midst of it, to bring um, guidance, to point people to the true and greater glory of God. But to be salt and light, we have to be different. We have to be in the world, and yet we have to be different from it. And so J.C. Ryle has this great quote, and he, um, he says this about being salt and light. It will never do to idle through life, thinking and living like others, if we mean to be owned by Christ as his people. Have we grace? Then it must be seen. Have we the Spirit? Then there must be fruit. Have we any saving religion? Then there must be a difference of habits, taste, and turn of mind between us and those who think only of the world. Salt and light evidently imply peculiarity, both of heart and life, of faith and practice. We must dare to be singular and unlike the world if we mean to be saved. To be salt and light means to be different, means to stand out. It means sometimes you're going to be weird and your friends are going to think you're strange. That's what this cruciform life looks like to the rest of the world. So the second question then is, well, how do we achieve this? This is great and all, but what is it, how do we get there? How do we, how do we achieve this? Well, it's interesting at this point, if you think back to the crowds that Jesus was talking to, they actually would have been tracking right along. These images, especially the images of light, these are coming from the Old Testament. If you think about... Um, Um, God's promise to Abraham, he says, you're going to be a light to the nations. 
Or if you think about God's covenant with Israel in Exodus, he says, um, I will be your God and you will be my people. You will be a kingdom of priests. You will be different and set apart. They would have been tracking right along until this second section, especially when Jesus gets to verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, these were by far the most holy, the most righteous, the most God-fearing people imaginable in Jesus' day. And he is saying, unless you are more holy than that, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That would be pretty devastating to hear. In fact, it is really devastating to hear. Because we can't do that. We can't achieve that level of holiness, right? Well, it's interesting to note one thing about this holiness, the Pharisees' holiness, the scribes' holiness. And um, a word we, I think we've used it before, that we might use to describe that is, is they had a transactional relationship with God. You know what I mean by a transactional relationship? You do this for me, I'll do this for you, right? You help me out here, I'll help you out there. And so when it came to God, it was like, well, look, um, we'll be holy, God, and you can bless us. Bless us with the kingdom. Bless us with power or prosperity. It's a transactional relationship. You do this for me, and I'll do this for you. Now, we have relationships like this too. They're not all bad, right? If you go to a restaurant and you're paying money for a meal, you expect, what, good food and good service. That's, that's fair. If you go to the dry cleaners and you drop off your clothes and you pay for them, you expect them to be returned what? Clean, right? There's a transaction there. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, the problem is when this type of relationship seeps into our other relationships, like with our friends, you know, you have a relationship with a friend, and, and the reason you're friends is because you have this sort of, well, I'll do this and you do that, and we'll consider ourselves friends. Or worse, what if that um, transactional relationship seeps into your marriage, your spouse? You know, I married you, so let's do this, or, you know, um, I'll do this for you, you do that for me because we're married. How does that, how does that work? It's not so good. What about with your relationship with God? You know, I come to church every Sunday, and I read my Bible every day, and I serve all the time. God, you owe me. You owe me. You owe me some level of health or prosperity, or, or you at least owe me the kingdom, right? When I was in seminary, I worked um, as, a chap- as a hospice chaplain for, for a year. I did that as part of my training. Uh, they called it clinical pastoral education, and I got to sit with people who are very close to death. And the most common thing that was said to me was, um, I would I usually ask, like, well, how are you with God? You know, you're about to die. How's your relationship with the Lord? And, and the most common response to that question was, I hope when I meet God, he will see that I did more good things than bad things. And there's a lot of uncertainty in that statement and a lot of doubt because I think most people realize that we can't do enough good things. We can't get there. 
God will not take a transactional relationship. We need a righteousness that exceeds that. And that, friends, is what we have in Jesus. Look at verse 17. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus has come to fulfill the law. And so all the rules, Ten Commandments, think about the Ten Commandments, or think about um, the, the Exodus or Leviticus or Numbers, the, all the rules and all the laws. Jesus is saying, I'm actually not abolishing those. I'm fulfilling them by fulfilling their purpose. He is embodying them. He's embodying the purpose of the law. And the purpose of the law is not to make us to do the right things, but it's so that God might capture our hearts. And so Jesus came and he lived and he walked on this earth and he lived a life in love of God and love of neighbor in the most perfect and most righteous way that could possibly be done. He loved without condition, without transaction, He loved us to the point of death, even death on the cross. And in his death, he took the penalty for our sins, for our failure to actually be the people God had called us to be. Jesus took that on his shoulders so that we might be restored to God and restored to each other. On the cross, Jesus has loved us with an unconditional love, with an unconditional righteousness that is not transactional, He didn't say, all right, now y'all are starting to behave, so I'm going to die for the rest of your sins. It says in Romans that he died for us while we were still sinners. Period. Full stop. He died for us. He loves us. Period. There's no condition. There's no, he loves us if, or he loves us when, or he loves us because. He loves us, period. This is good news. And so when that reality seeks into our hearts, that's when our lives start to take on this cruciform shape. When we have been loved like that, we're invited by the Holy Spirit to to love others in the same way. And so I want us to just leave with these two thoughts as we we, um, finish up. And the first one is this. When we know that one thing, Jesus Christ and Him crucified, we're invited to love others in a way that is independent of who they are, and what they do. You love others simply because. And that means people you disagree with. Can you love people you have profound disagreements with and love them anyway, despite your disagreements? That means even your annoying neighbor down the street. Can you love him or her like this? That's what we're being invited to do. This non-transactional, non-dependent, sacrificial love of others. We're not going to get there in this world, but that's the goal. And that's why we keep reminding ourselves of what Christ has done for us and why we keep inviting the Holy Spirit to change our hearts. Second thing is this. Take this home with you. God loves you in a way. He loves you. Listen to me, not your neighbor, not the person sitting next to you. He loves you in a way that is completely independent of anything you've ever done. It's completely independent of anything you have ever been. He loves you, period. That means if you are the most holy, the most righteous, 
the most churchy person to ever walk the face of the earth, God loves you anyway, despite all of that. (laughs) And that means no matter what guilt or shame or fear or burden that you're carrying on your shoulders right now, God loves you anyway. And he wants to be in relationship with you. And there's, there's, it's not dependent on anything you could possibly do. It's simply God has put that out there. He says, I love you. I want to be in relationship with you. Come to me. Because there's just one thing. There's just all of this whole book is pointing to this one thing. is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's all we need to know. And everything else will flow from that and will be salt and light in this world and we'll know in the deepest deepest and darkest recesses of our hearts that we have been loved in a way that we cannot ever imagine.